Jewish audio on Chabad.org. Hello, everyone. This is In Conversations with Chana. I'm Chana Weisberg, editor of thejewishwoman.org. If you are watching these In Conversations on Facebook Live, on Chabad.org's Facebook page, I want you to be aware that we have these all these interviews on Chabad.org. You can just do a search on Chabad.org and you will find it in Conversations with Chana. We also have now these uh, all these conversations on podcast. So join us on, on the podcast if you want to go for a walk and listen to us while you're walking. We are on all major platforms on podcasts. Just do a search for In Conversations with Chana and you will see us. So this is again In Conversations with Chana. I'm Chana Weisberg, editor of thejewishwoman.org. And I am visited tonight with a wonderful guest. Her name is Esther Zirkin. She is a mother, a teacher, a an author. She's a she wrote a memoir, and I have her book right here. It's called Where's the Daughter That I Raised, as well as another book that is a fiction, a novel book called The Thirteenth Gate. And um, I I know Esther from way back when, so it's really a privilege to be here with you today. Thank you so much for joining us, Esther. My pleasure. Baruch Hashem. Go ahead. Wonderful. <laughs> so Esther, tell us a little about your journey. Tell us about what you wrote about in your memoir. I'll let, I'll let you do the talking for the, you know, to tell us a little bit about your story. So briefly, I had uh, four years of, uh, I would, now I call it growth. But at the time, I had other words for it. (laughs) Four years that I was uh, very sick. And um, when we thought that the sickness was, um, when we had vanquished the dragon, we had destroyed um, the cancer that uh, I ended up battling. um, And everything looked rosy. My son, uh, my my boys had... uh, about chickenpox, and my youngest son at the time contracted chickenpox, and and from a complication, he he ended up dying before we even knew that he had the complication, and wow. my faith was very much challenged during those four years. Um, looking back, I would say that 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 was tremendous growth. Um, I do often call my some of my talks that I give. I call it a uh, faith after fumbling, and uh, I just at this point when having gone through it, and it's it's, it's I I wrote the the book in order to um, share all the things that I had learned that I would never have learned had I not been in such excruciating pain and having um, experienced. I I think really walking with God uh, during some moments, certainly. Um, and then I realized that my life had been enriched so tremendously by all of the things that I had experienced, by the in and out of hospital with for four years with cancer, and then the unbelievably shocking loss of my son, um, of our, our son. And I would not I just wanted to share everything because it all came together at about 10 years ago or actually 11 years ago when my youngest 
So, yes. Yeah, so after the cancer, and I'm being very brief about the sure, sickness sure. because it's it's all in the book. But after the cancer, uh, we were blessed with miracle babies. So the cancer really prevent was preventing you from yes. having more. Well, children. the cancer was a direct result of a pregnancy gone wrong. So the cancer was actually in the uterus. So mm-hmm. the fact that I was able to have children after that was nothing short of a miracle and um and so you know we were blessed with these five miracle babies and i had children before the cancer came so you know i'd always had this vision of having this beautiful um shabbos table with my sons and my daughters and now bar hashem with my daughters-in-law and my grandchildren our grandchildren bar hashem so i that that was utterly threatened that vision was utterly threatened and did not look like there was there was going to be um, a question of that vision. It didn't look there for many years. It didn't look like that was going to happen. And then, and you, you write you write about how you argue with the doctor, like he wanted you to just give uh, yeah. up on that vision of having more children, and you were very tenacious that you wanted more children and you would do anything to have those children correct correct so yeah we had um we had some tough times the my doctor he became a very dear friend i have to say Mm -hmm. and he really understood us myself my husband um even though it's totally not his culture and i did present very differently to most women most women that have gone through what i went through do not want to continue having children and that was just not even a thought that, you know, I was going to, we were going to forge ahead, um, come what may. And he, he got it. He didn't understand it fully, but he got it. And that's why he actually did breakthrough surgery. He, his, um, what he did in the end was something that has never been done before in Ontario. And I don't know, um, if it's ever been done before in the world with the kind of, um, success that we experienced Baruch Hashem. So um, what he he ended up cutting away the part a third of the uterus and um, and closing the uterus together and hoping that it would in time heal. And then even though I had a compromised uterus, I would maybe maybe be able to um, have another child, but I would never be able to labor and I'd have to be, you know, it would have to be a uh, cesarean, but I was game for that. That was, that was fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and you then, went on to have how many children after that? Well, we had uh, our first miracle baby, Mardechai, who just got married in the summer. Oh, wow. Shachna. And then two a year after Mardechai was born, we had our second miracle baby, Chayla. Then two years after that, we had Yeshua Shlaima. 18 months after Yeshua Shlaima was born, we had Beryl, Diver, and 18 months after him, we had Adela. So it was unbelievable. unbelievable blessings, unbelievable miracles. And yeah. What made you so much want to have more children when you knew that there was this risk of having right. more children? So um, because of my history, the risk was very high. And I had... Um, I did have the support of the medical team because the medical team said that it is possible and I was ready to do anything that was possible, right? And um, there is no blessing 
like the blessing of a child. Mm. Mm. Beautiful. Wow. So you, you say that you went through, these were years of great challenge, but tremendous growth. Yeah. How so? How so? How do you feel you've grown? Oh, okay. So I feel that probably all of us, because I don't think I'm unique. I, the only thing that's different about me is that I'm willing to talk about it. Absolutely. <laughs> to me i'm happy to share okay that's very brave that's very brave because a lot of people unique though because i think that we all come into the world with a set of expectations either given to us by our parents or just innately within us or just because of our culture we just have these expectations and um we all kind of have a script and it's just got to be perfect right? So we've got to marry the perfect spouse and we have to have perfect children and they have to perfectly ace everything and they have to be perfectly beautiful and they have to be perfectly healthy and they have to be, you know, they are going to also marry the perfect expectations. Yes. There's all, there's all this perfection that is, that is just what we feel so entitled to. And Mm -hmm. everything was, was taken away from me. Like it was all taken away. You know, I mean, Baruch Hashem, I have the most incredible husband um, but my health was taken away, my security, my safety. Um, then with, when, when I, every time I thought I was, I had gotten better and the, the, the road ahead looked so rosy, then it became trashed again. And, and, and it, there were so many ups and downs and the downs were unbelievably down. And then with the loss of our child, and especially since I has, I'd had cancer and my son had chicken pot. Mm-hmm. And I have never been able to wrap my mind around the idea of who exactly was destined to die. And I can't make that calculation. I can only live with what is. Did you feel guilt? Total guilt. Total, total guilt. I was I was a mess for a, a while. And guilt was the badge I wore. And how did you overcome that? <sighs> I mean, tell, tell us a little about how, I mean, you, you said he just passed away suddenly. You went, suddenly. His, you went to his crib in the morning. How old was he? He was two and a quarter. Two and a quarter. He had chicken pox the night before, a normal, normal childhood disease. Childhood. Yeah. And you went to his crib in the morning and he just wasn't alive. Right. What was and, your reaction? Well, there's a scream that comes from a place that, you don't ever want to visit. And, and then um, it, it was very, uh, like I, I had to tell my children, my other children who came running into the room, and I didn't want them to experience this, but there was no way to get out of it. Mm-hmm. So I, I sent them to their room. And then I, I, it was before cells, right? So I called a friend um, and then I, I, I dumped the phone down and then I ran out of the house. Now, the, the weirdest thing about running out of the house was I honestly felt the stairs moving and the door, the walls moving around, like nothing that um, nothing that's solid remains solid during those minutes. Everything moved and shifted and any, and the ground shifted, the walls shifted. And I ran out of the house because I couldn't be in the house during that time. And I just screamed to Hashem. I just, I had a 
the things that I said then, I can't repeat now, but I did write them in the book. And I find it hard to revisit that particular conversation with Hashem that I had. Um, If you don't mind, do you mind me quoting one of them? Sure, go ahead. So this was um, at the end of the Shiva period uh, for your son, Baruch Benachem Mendel. Uh, Your husband had finally gone back to work. It was, I think, the day, right the day after. And you finally allowed yourself to express what was inside you. You broke down and spoke to God and you said, how have I displeased you so? When? What sin have I committed to be chastised like this? So racked with eternal pain that will never go away. Answer me. Answer me. I won't accept your silence. How do you expect me to go on to function in this pain-filled world? I can't go on. Don't you see? I can't. So, you know, I, I think people who are listening to this, whatever pain or chat, like you said, everyone has some challenges and pains in their life, unfortunately. I think these are words that people can relate to. They, we sometimes feel like, I just can't. I just can't. You know, don't you see? I just can't. And I want to know what helped you to go on from that. I mean, that was obviously a very low point in your life. What what changed? What helped you? What what spurred you on? Okay, then at that moment, nothing. At that, I'm I'm gonna explain the experience of being at the lowest lowest point of my life. I just had to be there, and my husband had um it was the day we got up from shiva and my husband and i had gone to do a mitzvah we had gone to deal with tzedakah funds which was something that was sort of programmed into um the rabbi rabbi gansberg who wanted us to understand that we need to still continue to function and 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 help others i think that that was the uh the purpose of his sending us on that errand and i i'm grateful to him for that And then my husband wanted to go, he had some classes. It was very early in the morning still, and he wanted to teach those classes. So he asked my permission if he could go, and I I encouraged him to go. And then I entered the house. And when I entered my house, I just, I heard my footsteps and everything came crushing, all the, everything came crushing down. Um, There was some, some family members in the kitchen that were eating and they were sort of enjoying their time together. They were having coffee and sandwiches. And I was so far removed from that kind of normal everyday function, everyday experience. And I felt the, I felt like I was totally trapped in my own pain. And I went up to my room and I just let it, let it out. And um, it's, I had, you can call it a tantrum. I don't mind. And um, I think you deserved to throw a tantrum. (laughs) And my, um, the relatives that were in my house, they, they must have heard because it was not quiet. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that that screaming and those words needed to come out. Right. And I had to be with that. I had to just be there and not resist this all-encompassing agony 
that were, had taken over my body physically. Right. And my they must have called my husband because when I finished the tantrum and I had crawled into my bed, the next thing I knew he was there and he felt terrible that he had left me. And I didn't feel terrible that he had left me. I thought that it was a good thing that he had gone to, to learn Tyra. I thought that Ty, I know that Tyra anchors us. I know that when we teach, we feel anchored. And I knew that that was good for him. So I wasn't upset with him for going to, to learn with his students. I thought that was a good thing. And I remember that this was the first time that I verbalized this sentiment that has actually become a bit of a mantra, uh, especially during that time. Now, of course, Baruch Hashem, you know, with, especially with the Miracle Children, we've moved on and we do, uh, there's a lot of joy. There's a tremendous amount of joy in my home. And I, I know you've been here, so you know that. But um, at that time, the, it was the first time that I verbalized the sentiment to my husband. I said, Shmuel, that's my husband, Shmuel Yasef. I said, I have to become friends with the pain because it's not going anywhere friends with the pain wow and it was the first time that i you know worded it that way and and that really became a very important part of the healing right. is that acceptance and 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 to become intimately close with and know know yourself in agony so we all have we all have pain in our lives, right? There's, our lives are joyous and painful. It's a combination. And the pain that I was experiencing was utterly, utterly excruciating. I did not know that I was going to survive. But when I said to my husband, I need to make friends with this pain, I think that that was like the first tiny step towards... Yeah. not healing because the healing it takes a long long time but being able to exist yes to 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 just function breathe you know and the you speak about the guilt i never i never right to touch on yes. that yes the guilt, guilt was, was absolutely enormous what was the guilt what were the was the guilt that you were feeling i mean i, I think as mothers we always feel i should have could have didn't you know Right. So the guilt that I was feeling was, did I miss something? How could I have missed? Like, I know that he didn't look good the night before, and I had called the doctor, but the doctor had assured me that he was fine, and I thought he would be fine. And then um, what did help, although it's odd to say this, because in, in uh, our law, we don't, we don't go for autopsies, right? Uh, an autopsy is against halacha, but when it comes to a child's, then the legalities are very, very clear. And he what he had a very non-invasive autopsy. And I only got the results. We got the results nine months later. And when we got the results, we understood that there was nothing physically that we could have done to prevent this because one of the parks, and it's impossible to know which, had become infected and it, the infection had fulminated. And from the start of the infection to the moment that the neshama, the soul, left the body, in other words, the moment of death was only about half an hour. So it happened in the middle of the night before we knew. And this was 
something that I had to stop beating myself up about because A, the beating myself up wasn't going to be in any way a positive thing. And B, it was the realization that this was totally heavenly and that I played no hand in that. Mm -hmm. So, But then there's the other guilt of, you know, I had cancer for four years and in the middle of, or towards the end of that, my son got chickenpox, which is like a mild childhood disease that all children get. And um, and I couldn't wrap my mind about around who exactly was supposed to die. Obviously, I wasn't because I'm here. But now, and that's also part of the writing. The writing is because I'm here and I learned a lot. So I better make that meaningful. I better make the life of my son meaningful and I better make his death meaningful. Mm-hmm. And that's was pushing me to to write and to write it in in the most profound way that I could, which was to for it to be an experience, not just a telling, but you know, to bring the reader in and and said and 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 come. I want I want to share with you. I want to come come with me. I to make to us live through you. what you live through. So I kind of make. I mean, listen, it's it's triggering for some people. Like sure, and and I I I don't. I don't pressure anyone to read it. Nobody needs to read it. Nobody needs to buy it. It's fine because I wanted to write it and I, I did. Thank God. And, um, and so I kind of accomplished what I wanted to accomplish, which was to get everything out. And um, so now whoever reads it, it's that's godly. That's up to Hashem. I I put it out there. So So the guilt was, was lessened when you kind of acknowledge that it's not in your hands. It's in God's hands. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, and and also, I made a decision. There was a lot of decisions that I made during this unbelievably difficult and challenging time. And one of them, I remember, it was early morning during the shiva, and I was standing in my family room, and the men were in the living room, and they were davening, and I was davening with the minion in my family room, but I was alone because the women came later. You know, they who have children and they're you know, dealing with their kids. So the women's that would come later and the men would come for the early morning. And I, of course, couldn't sleep. So I davened with them. I was praying with them in family room. And I was alone. And I remember standing by the fireplace of my family room and I said to myself, from now on, you have to make decisions that are conducive to life. Life, mm. not death. Mm. So... The guilt that I was feeling was very all-encompassing. Um, and I knew that this isn't a good decision. This isn't a good choice because it's not going to do anything. It's not going to bring you back. And uh, and it's it's causing me to be an absentee mother because I have other children and the guilt that I'm feeling and the, the, um, the flawedness. I felt flawed as a mother, right? that there was something intrinsically wrong with me as a mother, that I didn't see this, I didn't catch it before it happened, was not conducive to life. Sure. So I had to purge myself from that. So so what was living conducive to life? What did that mean to you? Making decisions that are conducive to life? Mm -hmm. Joyous decisions. Mm -hmm. The decision to be grateful. The decision to be... You know, uh, on the morning that it happened and I was running out in the street, um, at one point the shock sets in and my body 
like weakened. Um, and I sat, I came into the house and there was the house filled up like very, very quickly. We have, we have a wonderful community here in Toronto, but I know that the Jewish from community, Orthodox communities are wonderful everywhere. I just happen to live in Toronto. So I have a lot of appreciation for the Toronto community. But, um, you know, when something like this happens, everybody is there for you. So there's an, a tremendous amount of support and they just filled up the house and I was feeling extremely weak. And I remember wading through the people. The women were all next to me and the men, tons of men had gone to my husband and he was sitting then in the living room. This was the morning of. And I'm sitting on the stairs and in walks my doctor, the doctor who had actually understood that I had cancer before I knew that I had cancer. This is uh, Dr. Kersner, Michael Kersner. You know him. Sure. It's great guy. So he walked in and the first thing that one of the women said was to Dr. Krosner, says, maybe she needs a tranquilizer. Mm. And so Dr. Krosner looked at me and he said, Esther, do you think you need a tranquilizer? And I said, no. I said, I don't, I don't, I don't want to not feel this. Mm. I said, if I, if this is what Hashem has planned for me, then I need to experience it fully and be present even though I was so weak at that time because the shock had really started to make its way through my body Mm. but I just and now I'm not saying there's anything wrong with tranquilizers I'm just saying that for me you wanted to really be present I want to yeah I just felt this is what Hashem has destined for me and I need to be fully alive and aware in order to experience it it's it's like i it's like when i when i'm giving birth i never want i never take um epidural yeah never want to because i I felt that if this is the pain that the women are supposed to feel i'll I'll do it i'll do it (laughs) (laughs) but don't make those who do take it feel guilty out there it's it's me i'm an intense person right right yes (laughs) okay i want to touch a little about you know you said your house filled with all these people and I know, you know, at the beginning of your journey, you write about how in the beginning of your, of your illness, you did not want to share with the community. And then you, you even describe, like, on Rosh Hashanah, as you left the shul, as you left the synagogue, how there was so many people coming at you. And I, I just want to share, I would just want to read it to everyone, because I think this is an important part of what people go through when we are on the giving end or when we're on the receiving end. So you wrote here... Um, this was, um, you were at the time you were at, on, at, on, you were on chemo at the time and you wrote every woman who walked out of the show approached me, every woman, women I was close with, women I hardly knew, women I didn't know at all, intent of wishing me a sweet new year, a year of good health and happiness. I could not help feeling that. Look at that, Esther. They only see you because you're sick. What a sorry being you have become, garnering friends out of pity. What a pathetic little loser. I think that's so um, in tune with how many of us feel when we are on the receiving end. Can you elaborate on what it felt like? With pleasure. And um, what should we keep in mind at the time? Because you you do say afterwards that then you had a change of mind. And I just want to read this as well, because I thought that this was so powerful. Um, you had a change of thought and you, you said to, to yourself, only you can exact a change and it all begins in the mind. 
And you then change your perspective to look how much they all care. Take in their eyes. They are not faking. Do you see how earnest they are? Do you recognize how difficult it must be for them to approach you as unsmiling as you are? Love them. Cherish their goodwill. How did that change come about? And what should... What would you like to say about how we should accept? Because for some of us, it really is hard to accept from others, you know, be on the receiving end. So how did you change that? I am so happy to discuss this because this is one of the growths. And it was so difficult. It was so difficult because I am a proud person. And uh, when the diagnosis, the first time that that I was diagnosed with cancer, I had this incredible need to keep it quiet. Just me and my husband. Nobody else was allowed to know. And he thought that was particularly unwholesome and unhealthy. And of course, I didn't listen. I just, you know, was very determined (laughs) to keep it quiet. And what I found with that was that everybody found out anyway. Everybody found out anyway. And it was really awkward because there was like this little secret that Esther Zirkin was keeping, but everybody knew about it. We weren't allowed to let her know that we knew, but we have to help her, but she's not allowed to. She's not allowed to know that we're helping her. All that stress doesn't need to be. All that stress doesn't need to be. So when the second time that I was diagnosed, that was, I also had a massive tantrum. I think that um, it's the tantrums that bring out, you know, it's when that, that need for growth that you are being pushed and pummeled and, and squeezed into a new dimension, a new consciousness, a new perspective. And it's so hard to change. It's so difficult to change. And the tantrum was an expression of all that change, that turmoil that was going on inside me. And then out pops after the, you know, the volcanic eruption of my rage, out pops this wonderful idea you know, I, I mentioned the tantrum that I had when I, the day that we got up and that wonderful idea of, okay, I've got to make friends with pain, right? That that was also an unconscious eruption coming up from deep, deep, deep within, right? So this one also, when I, when I was diagnosed for the second time with cancer and knowing that there was no way to keep it quiet and knowing the structure of our wonderful community, our wonderful network, that everybody was going to swoop in and take care of me. And knowing how much I resented that and still saying, I'm going to blow this story wide open. Hmm. Right? So out of that tantrum comes this idea that I am going to accept everybody's good wishes with grace. Hmm. But it was so hard. Sure. It was so, so hard because we all love to give. We all love to give. Giving is part of our DNA. Okay. There's nothing. We're we're inborn, innate givers, right? But to be the recipient. And the way you put it, such a pathetic loser. I mean, no one thought looked at you in that way at all. You know? I know, but that's how the person who it doesn't matter feels. if nobody yes. was looking at me like right. that. I was looking at myself like sure. that. For I sure. it was it was it was all something that I had, you know, I had to overcome. And I remembered learning in my youth, and that's also another thing that a tremendous amount of Torah learning that I had gone that had gone on in my formative years that. That held you. 
yeah, that that was had gone on in the abstract, right? Mm-hmm. And now because I was going through all of this change and turmoil and hardship, those lessons became pivotal to my and so perspective. real, so real, so real. I had to take the Hasidus that I had learned and and make it mine, make it mine. So when I was standing at the on, on the sidewalk waiting for my husband and my oldest son to come out and everybody was wishing me a good year and I knew that they were all coming to me because I was this pathetic little loser. <laughs> um, I remembered that thoughts, you know, thought, speech and action are called the garden clothing, garments of the soul. The reason that they're called garments is because you can change them. Mm. Right? And they are the three ways in which the soul expresses itself. So, and just like we express ourselves with our clothing, we express who we are with our clothing. So too, this thought, speech, and action is our clothing as, and, and it's the conduit by which we, we express, the soul expresses itself. So I took those thoughts and realized, okay, it's up to me. Well, I'm going to have this battle now. and I'm going to have to stop these horrible thoughts and really change them into something that was conducive to life. Well, so that's, but okay. that, yeah, that, that was before, you, the foreshadow of what came later, right? right? So, you know, where were the thoughts of my, me being a pathetic little loser leading me to? Mm. Down, down, mm-hmm. down, down. Was that good? No. And, and did it change anything that was happening? No, the women still came out of shore and they still came and gave me this hug and they still gave me these wishes and I still, you know, had to accept it with grace. So then accept it with grace and then mm-hmm. change your thoughts and start, and it all starts inside your own head and your, and it can affect your heart. So when I changed those thoughts and I started to embrace them back and wish them a good year and like just accept with grace all of their good wishes and just love them for being so sweet. Like, how can you, how can you resent somebody for wish, wishing you a good year? Come on, Esther, you can do better than that. And um, and what happened was that my heart literally felt lighter. My inner self shed baggage right there. Mm-hmm. And that's when I realized I have power. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. We have power. Yeah. Um, you, what you said about the tantrum just makes me think a little bit how, you know, nowadays we're very into trauma and how people are holding the trauma in their body. So it sounds like your body released that trauma. So that tantrum was actually so beneficial in getting out that. What Not you were- while you're in it. You know? <laughs> while you're in it, it, you don't know that you're going to come out. Right. Sure. But then both, tra- both times that I had that whopper tantrum, both times, I, what came out of it was more precious than, than gold, more precious than diamonds. And, and I don't resent. That's why I thought when I was writing, I was like, should I write this? Yeah, just write it. Just, just get it. Just tell everybody that having a tantrum is okay. Sure. Being angry is okay. Feeling all of the feelings that you feel, that you felt during that horrible time in your life is, is, it's all good. It's all human. And, and give people permission, you know, to just to to lose it. Because mm-hmm. if they lose it, then maybe some good will come out of it instead of um, 
holding it in, holding it in, being, you know, I also, I, I changed my perspective on what strength is. I changed my idea about what, what is strength. So when I was growing up, remember, I grew up in England. And England is, they don't do great with emotions, right? Stick up a lip. <laughs> Stick up a lip. You know, a, pu- a public display of emotion. <laughs> so, um, and here, I, I was always a very emotional person. I was always an emotional person. So, and, and my mother was a, an emotional person. So she always gave permission for me to be who I was. And, but it didn't always fly in school or in social settings, right? And um, I would say that there was definitely parts of um, me that was ashamed of being so intensely emotional. There was definitely shame that I carried. That does not exist anymore, thank God. Mm-hmm. So my idea now of, of, of strength is being present and feeling all mm-hmm. of those the ugly, messy, right. terrible emotions that you're supposed to feel and being okay with it. Like, you know, oh, it's very interesting. So I actually have, um, you know, oh, this is a whole other discussion, but um, I was sharing notes with somebody outside Shul in England this past summer about difficulties that we've had that have nothing to do with my book. And uh, we we were sharing notes and then she suddenly turned to me and she said, so Esther, are you going to tell me there's no happily ever after? After all you've been through, there's no happily ever after. And I said, of course there's happily ever after. She said, how? Because we were sharing notes on something that gave us both a lot of darkness and And that has nothing to do with the book. In other words, nothing happens in a vacuum. It's not like everything was hunky-dory, hunky-dory, hunky-dory. In other words, it's not, it's not everything happy ever after. And you still have the range of emotions and pain right. in everyday right. life. It might so not be such cataclysmic events, but it's still things that hurt deeply. So I, um, so I said, there is a happily after. She said, how is there a happily ever after? So I said, because when you realize that, you're, that life is never supposed to be perfect mm-hmm. and that this, the existence, our existence was never supposed to be perfect and this world is not perfect and you're okay with it, mm-hmm. there's your happily ever after. Well, are we supposed to be okay with it? Are we supposed I think to- so. I think so. I think we're supposed to work with it. I think we're supposed to do whatever we can. And then, and, and we're supposed to like, with the, you know, cause you, you had an argument with me earlier about faith after fumbling and you felt that I didn't fumble and I feel for sure I fumbled, but I believe that faith requires fumbling. Mm-hmm. I believe that faith requires us to struggle. Listen, our name is Yisrael. That's why I don't consider it fumbling because you weren't fumbling. I, <laughs> I was just going through the motions, but to Absolutely. me, it's you were finding your faith, finding it. Okay. So that's part, of the path. <laughs> that's part of the path. It's like saying you failed. You didn't fail. You succeeded. You're part of, you know, succeeding is failing. In order to yes, exactly. To fail. exactly. So are we supposed to be okay with it? I believe that that's the, that this is what Hashem has destined for us. I think that we have, Everybody has strengths and weaknesses. Everybody's life is full of joy and pain. Everybody has. Well, I think accepting you know, ourselves, accepting our mistakes, but accepting the pain in this world, I think we're supposed to say, no way, God, we don't want this. We want Mashiach. I think we we're supposed God. to say, I think we're supposed to say, don't give anybody else pain. The pain that you gave me, okay, I can handle, but this one doesn't deserve it. That one doesn't deserve it. We're supposed to fight against I don't think we deserve it either. I don't think we deserve it. <laughs> okay, I don't think there's such a thing as deserving. I don't think right. I, it's not deserving. About deserving. 
not deserve. But if we're God's children, God's child who God loves. So just, you know, it's time for the good times. We've had already enough of the years of of the growth and the gullus and the difficulty and the exile. Agreed. I I want to touch on your mother because you do mention your mother so much in the book and you just mentioned her now. And, you know, you, you write about how your mother had a very difficult life herself. And yet she, and you titled the book, actually, because this is the words that your mother said, where is the daughter I raised? And she was almost giving you like, almost rebuking you, like, where's your faith, Esther? And you titled titled the book after that. And she said at another point, which I found so, um, it was so interesting. She said, don't ever think with all the pain that you have, that you have the copyright on pain, that you're the only one that has the pain. And when I think when someone is going through so much tragedy and so much hardship, it's natural to feel like I have the copyright on pain. Like who's suffering? Like I'm suffering. And yet bad, she, bad choice. Bad, bad choice. choice. If you, yeah. My mother was concerned. I know she was concerned at the time that I was going to do that, that I was going to say nobody suffered like I suffered. Mm-hmm. And my husband, she didn't want my husband or I to um to go down that road because she knew that that would be a a, a really bad choice for us so the 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 thing is is that we all have pain and my husband my my mother when she was she was actually leaving to go back to england uh, when she called me into the dining room we had french doors and she closed the doors and she she put her her hands on my face like this (sighs) and she said to me these words she said mama She said, um, I know that you and Shmuel must think that you two are the only people to suffer like this. And right now, that is true. There's nothing as painful as what you two are going through. But listen, she said, everybody suffers in this world. She says, you look around you. She says, you go back into that room. It was full of people. She says, you look around you. You will see that nobody gets away scot-free. Nobody and when you can see somebody else's pain, that will be the first step to your healing. Mm. Wow. You know, she's right. She's right. If you get so absorbed and obsessed with your own pain that you can't see others, mm. that's not conducive to life. Mm. And we are here to help each other. And yeah, you know, she was so bang on. But why did I name it after her? Because she she came, the day that she came was the day, you know, that day. It was Gimel Nisan, that morning. And she was in my house by the evening. And I was at my worst. And my when I say my worst is I was blaming myself totally. And then she said, don't you know? That Hashem gives and Hashem takes. One second, Esther, you saw, because she lost. I lost my brother when I was 15. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I, I saw what she went through. And she was not having my, my crazy guilt, my self-absorption. She was not having it. She was like, don't you know Hashem gives and Hashem takes? Where is the daughter I raised? Mm-hmm. And... 
Only a mother could say that. Totally. Only a mother. Totally. Wow. She was an incredible woman. So wow. I'm very grateful. Yeah. Very grateful. Uh-huh. I also want to touch a little about your, uh, on your husband, because throughout the book, he comes across as such a pillar of strength at your mm-hmm. side and such an incredible support system that you had. How did this affect your relationship? And, and what oh. would you somebody who doesn't have that pillar of strength, how they can get through such a difficult situation? He was, he was incredible every step of the way. I mean, he was not happy with me sometimes, like when I, um, <laughs> he was not happy with me when I decided that we're going to keep it a secret. He thought that was very unhealthy. And we had an argument. I'm not ashamed to say that and to write about it. Um, he was certainly, he, he, we were very, very on the same page for most of it. I mean, obviously that time, you know, but when they came back the second time, and I, uh, I decided to blow the story wide open. He was so much calmer about where I was mentally. Mm. And, and we fought, it was very much, we fought it together. We were very much a team. And we still are, Baruch Hashem, very much a team. Um, when, when, it, when the tragedy really hit, um, you know, he... He is just, he is a rock. Like, I didn't tell this to, I didn't write this in the book and I didn't, I don't talk about this much, but like, he went, when he knew what had happened, he was in shore when I made the discovery. He was, he he learns before davening that that he was in the middle of. When you made the discovery that your son passed away. Yeah. So he was learning Hasidus and then and he was somebody went to him because like the words spread like wildfire and they said you gotta go home and he came home and he didn't understand why there was the ambulance, the police, the fire, and why all these people here like didn't know what happened at that point. Didn't know what had happened. And um and I was the one that told him what had happened. And I begged him to go upstairs because I believed that he could save him. It was craziness, and he ran up the stairs, but he actually wasn't allowed in the room because the police were already surrounding the room in up in the upper hallway. And uh, and then he came downstairs, and he sort of moved, made his way into the family room, and I was at that point on the stairs. And then he disappeared for a few minutes, like maybe 10, 15 minutes maybe half an hour, I don't know. And afterwards he told me, and this is an incredible thing that I I didn't write about and maybe shouldn't even say, but I've already gone this far, so I might as well tell you. <laughs> he went down to his basement office to pay bills because wow. he knew that he wasn't going to be of sound mind for a while. And wow. he wanted to make sure that everything was tight, tightened up and closed before he checks out. Now, wow. that's incredible. Wow. I mean, that, that, you know, and then how he told his parents, you know, I just called my mother and blurted it. Like I was a mess. You know, how he told his parents, this did go in the book. He called them to say, 
that Baruch Menachem Mendel isn't doing very well. Mm-hmm. And then a half an hour later, he called to say, maybe we should say some Tehillim. Oh, my gosh. And then <sighs> he didn't want to shock them. Right. I didn't have the head. I didn't have the head. Of course. But he did. And I just, I just, wow. And then um, he gave me something. So, I mean, he was always giving me, he was always feeding me like sort of these ropes to hold on to, right? All the time that I was going through this, he would like come to a realization and then share it with me. And then I would hold on to it. So one of the things that he shared with me, so he was, he is a, he's a, a learner. Baruch Hashem. Like he's, he's, he's a bentaira. Baruch Hashem. So just he, let's translate that for people. He loves to learn Torah. He loves to learn Torah. Right. And he was sharing all these divrei Torah at the, you know, during the Shabbos of the Shiva. So he, people were there and he would share divrei Torah. And I was a mess. Mm-hmm. Then at one point I remember being concerned that maybe he's like hiding his feelings. I was just full of feelings. Right? Mm-hmm. Maybe he's hiding his feelings in, by by sprouting out Torah. Like, what about feelings? What about what about pain? You know. Sure. And then one day during the shiva, I remember that the house was always full. And one day during the shiva, we happened to be alone in the kitchen. I was I was standing by the patio door, just looking at the new new grass coming out. I don't know why I was looking at the grass because it was spring. I don't know. And then I heard him behind me, and he said, "Esther." And I turned to him, and he said, and he was crying. And he says, you know, it's so painful. And I said, no. And he said, it's because the love is so great. Mm-hmm. And he said, to tell me, Ask, do you think you can love less? Mm-hmm. Said, so then I'm in great pain because I am in great love. Right. And that sort of helped me to sort you know, even in a small way, but like it's still, it's like one of those pivotal moments, like, okay. I'm in unbelievable pain because I'm in unbelievable love. And that's I such a beautiful perspective. Wow, that's really so beautiful. And he's just always been always been that way, just putting it into such a and, and giving me the space. Like we're very different. <laughs> you know we're very different. You know my husband, you know me. Yes. <laughs> we are so different. And he's he's he gives me the space to to be who I am, you know, even in the writing. I did not let him in on the writing for 10 years. From the time that I started writing this book until it was published was 10 years, okay? And in that whole time, okay, so I was on and off, obviously. I wasn't, like, writing for 10 years. He didn't uh, know that you were writing? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I shared everything with him. Oh, but he didn't know what you were writing? I didn't allow him into the, the written word. And the reason is because he is... By personality, he's he's um, a more private person, mm-hmm. and I my personality is to share everything. Mm-hmm. So I didn't want him to say, "Oh, why are you writing that? Don't write that." Mm-hmm. And then it would cramp me. It would like I, I didn't want my creativity to in any way be um, cut or or compromised. I just right. wanted it to just be a completely full on everything the way I wanted it to come out. And then I promised him, I said, Shmuel, I'm not going to let anything go to press without your permission. 
So when we had gone through all of the editing and it had been 10 long years of, and I enjoyed the process. Like you, you remember when I was writing, sure. <laughs> you still lived in Toronto. I was I writing. So it, I had enjoyed the process so much. And, and then, I mean, like I cried while I was writing and, and that, and that was fine. Cause I'm okay with crying. Right. So, um, it helped in your healing as well. Absolutely. absolutely. And then, um, the, the the week before it went to print, I so he didn't see it for ten years. He didn't see it, and then no, you I, saw it. And what did he feel? Like he, he well, we read it together, and every night we read another fifty pages. We cried. We laughed. Wow. We had such and 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 you know, he there was certain things that he said <laughs> didn't happen like that. Change. <laughs> so I was remembering wrong. And I would change it, but we laughed and we cried together, the two of us. It took about a week, 50 pages a night we did. And then he gave his haskama, so I felt okay, and then I let it go. And when... He um, mind being such a private person that it was going to be all out there. So, so what he told me was, and he is a private person, but what he told me is that if this helps even one person through their life, it's worth it. Wow. So, wow. so he felt that I had done like a service absolutely. by being so open and so honest. Absolutely. And, and absolutely. Couldn't agree more. So Beautiful. when the book came out, I didn't want anyone, I don't know if you know this, but I was petrified when the book came out. I didn't want anyone <laughs> to buy it. I didn't want anyone to read it. And then and I went well, to- you're heart. vulnerable. You're so vulnerable. Yeah. You have my heart. You basically, sure. in that, you take yeah. that book, you have my heart. For sure. So, um, and so, but it's a treasure. It's a treasure that you've given us a true treasure. No. So he says to me like this again, he just gives me these, these like saving nets kind of thing. He says, Esther books outlive their authors. Stop taking yourself so seriously. (laughs) You, you, if you can, you are going to help people then. It's all good. It's all good. Just stop. Stop worrying. And I, I, I did. I just said, okay. You know what? At some point, what I cast my, I cast my something upon the waters. What's that? Okay. I cast my net upon or something like that. So it's it does an expression. Anyway, that's what it, that's what it was. I was like, okay, let it go. Let it go. Wow, wow, unbelievable. What message? I mean, the time is running away. You're so oh, interested. Wow. I have no idea. And it's just been amazing to hear your journey and your the growth that you say. And I still say you're not fumbling, even though we call it fumbling. <laughs> um, so what what's your message? What would you like people to get from your book? Know that you are loved by Hashem. And even in, when you're feeling like the worst that you could possibly feel, all of this is part of your journey and it's it really really is for the best like when i realized that i could turn this experience with my son around and say you know and it took it took a, a long time this this part took a long time that my husband and i were chosen to bring down this unbelievable neshama this unbelievable soul that only had to be in this world for 2 years and a bit and we were his chosen parents and no one can take that away from us that was powerful. Wow. That was a powerful. What a, what a beautiful so, perspective. And so you can feel like, oh, Hashem hates me. I've done some terrible things, which is what happens in my tantrum, right? You know, what have I done to anger you so? What have I done that you chastise me so? And then when you you, 
you can have those thoughts, but then you've got to move on. You've got to process it and move on to the thoughts that are conducive to life. And, and they are no less real. In fact, they are more real. They are more truth when you realize how loved you are by Hashem. And everybody is loved because if otherwise Hashem wouldn't invest so much. Hashem is so detail oriented and he, and he invests so much into each and every person that exists. And though every person deserves respect, every person has their struggle and every person's struggle needs to be respected. Wow. That's beautiful. That's really a beautiful takeaway. But I would never have gotten to that point had I not gone through what the I went through. And the yes. anger. And, yes. the and, 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 and somebody once said to me, and, and it's so true, the deeper the, the pain, the deeper the joy. So when, you know, when my, my miracle babies were born and, you know, and, and Baruch Hashem, that the Shabbos table and the, the singing and the laughter and the fact that everyone loves each other and everybody, you know, gets on. Yeah, we have stuff. We have this one annoys that one, blah, blah, blah. It's all normal. But, you know, that we. Uh, I don't know. There's so much to be grateful for. There's so much joy in this world. If we choose to focus, it really does start within us. And the great, and this is another takeaway, the greatest work that we can do in this world happens so deep inside us where nobody knows, nobody's clapping, nobody's blowing trumpets and heralding you a hero. No one. It's between you and God. Mm. And that is the most powerful work that we can do here in this world. Wow. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Esther Zorkin, thank you for joining us. Where is the Daughter I Raised is the book that Esther wrote, as well as The 13th Gate. Beautiful books. I would encourage you all to read not only a book, but it's where she really shares her heart and soul with all of us and touches us deeply. Thank you so much for your wisdom. And I just want to bless you to have tremendous joy and nachas from all your children and grandchildren and all the health, health and happiness and goodness. Amen. You too. All the blessings. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much.